Hi, I'm Dr. Sonny Ravencourt from the University of Coruscant, and when I can't find reliable information for a lecture, I steal it from the Jedi Temple Archive podcast. Seriously, I do. Their security is terrible. There's like one old lady running the whole place. This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. Hello there. Rancho Obi-Wan, the Guinness World Records certified largest Star Wars memorabilia collection. Located in Petaluma, California, featuring the collection of super collector, author, and Star Wars fan ambassador Steve Sansweet. The most powerful Jedi ever. Visit RanchoObiWan.org and subscribe to the Rancho Obi-Wan Virtual Museum. A fun, authentic fan experience. Featuring rare photos, videos, Steve Sansweet Q&As, virtual tours of the museum, exclusive behind-the- seen stories and information and so much more plus your subscription helps ensure the future of the museum it's the rancho obi-wan virtual museum subscribe now at ranchoobi-wan.org get tons of cool perks information and history of star wars collecting from the man who knows it best steve sansui while contributing to the preservation of the world's largest star wars memorabilia collection ranchoobi-wan.org <laughs> There is more knowledge here than anywhere else in the galaxy. Only members of the Jedi Council are allowed access. Guarding the holocrons is one of the most important duties a Jedi can be given. Do you think you're up to the task? to another episode of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. I'm your host, Rob, and we are recording this episode on Wednesday, May 27th, 2020. And before we get started, I do just want to give a shout out and a happy birthday to my now 12-year-old son, Briggs. So uh, happy birthday, buddy, and I hope you have a great day. Okay, so for this week, our topic is the Empire Strikes Back. And with the 40th anniversary having just passed a few days ago, back on the 21st, uh, it seemed like a timely topic. And to help me kind of uh, unpack this awesome Star Wars episode, as well as all of the kind of behind the scenes stuff that make it so uh, amazing, I have a number of people here with me on the phone. First and foremost, I've got Tom from uh, Hyperion Adventures Podcast, who is my normal co-host, Tom. Welcome back to the Jedi Temple Archives. Rob, it's always a pleasure to be on the Jedi Temple Archives Podcast, especially for a topic of one of my favorite films out of the Star Wars universe, The Empire Strikes Back. I thought you may feel that way. And I've also got with me the guys from the Scarif Podcast. Once again, Alex blowing us off, but I've got Ro and Brad from the Scarif Scuttlebutt Podcast, another of our awesome Red 5 family. So guys, welcome back to the Jedi Temple Archives. It's fantastic for you to see us. It is. (laughs) And uh, I heard The Empire Strikes Back is overrated, but I'm willing to talk about it anyway. (laughs) 
Yeah, Brad was stop, uh, stop with your shenanigans. Yeah, Brad was prodding the Wampa, sending out some uh, some Twitter posts, kind of leading into this. Uh, he's he's been looking for articles, just uh, anything to stir the kettle a little bit. But uh, before we kind of get into that as a topic, I do want to kind of go back because I know that most of the listeners out there are going to have seen Empire Strikes Back at one time or another. But there's a lot of details about the actual making of Empire Strikes Back that are really kind of fun, uh, fun knowledge to have. I know that uh, a number of the guys that we've got on this call are, are familiar with a lot of the making of uh, from all the original trilogy films, but Empire Strikes Back of, uh, especially. And and uh, one of the kind of cool things that stands out with really most of the original trilogy films was that Lucas going into the initial Star Wars film uh, was pretty much broke. Uh, and it was really the success of American Graffiti that had come out uh, just uh, prior to leading into the initial Star Wars film that kind of allowed him the freedom to get in there and make Star Wars. And then then it was the success of Star Wars that allowed him to continue on the trilogy. Uh, and he actually was essentially the ultimate uh, epitome of Han Solo in that he was gambling with with his own money uh, in the making of Empire Strikes Back and kind of bankrolling that film uh, to get it up and going, much of which was from the the money that he was making uh, out, of the, out of the licensing arm of uh, of Lucasfilm. Uh, which was, I think, Black Falcon is what they officially set it up to be. But, um, you know, what do you guys think about, about you know, Lucas and kind of his approach? He was very much a, kind of a rebel in terms of uh, wanting to separate from old school Hollywood. And uh, certainly it paid off for him, but it was not without his challenges and, and his own travails. Yeah, if I can start out, uh, his story, uh, George Lucas's story, along with uh, Francis Ford Coppola and the studio that they built back in the late 60s, American Zoetrope, is one of the uh, base inspirations for me wanting to open up a production company, uh, which I did um, when I was able to. And uh, everything from you know learning that Francis Ford Coppola went to um, uh, you know, across the, the, um, did he, I think he went to Italy to, to purchase an editing machine, to bring it back to San Francisco, to edit, um, all that stuff. You know, he, he was one of those guys where he says he'd, he'd rather just own the equipment so he can go ahead and, and, and edit when he wanted to shoot when he wanted to. And that was basically my philosophy. Um, I had those decisions to make with my business partner, uh, whether to rent equipment or, or flat out buy it. And again, just the inspiration uh, of those two guys running their studio is what, uh, you know, kind of guided me initially. Um, if I wanted to edit my underwear at four in the morning, I, I'd go into the edit suite and just sit down and start editing. I didn't have to ask for permission or, or, or rent something. I, if I wanted to do it, I, you know, I needed to do it and that was it. So kudos to that uh, philosophy. Kudos to George and, and Francis, you know, two longtime friends that were able to do this, um, you know, on, on, on a shoestring, really, and, and watch their career grow, uh, you know, between the projects. You know, um, a lot of people, and we'll get into it, but a lot of people don't know how influential George Lucas was to Francis Ford Coppola's, you know, career when they first started out and vice versa, obviously. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a story. It's quite a story. Absolutely. Uh, Brad, Tom, what do you guys have to say? 
Well, you know, the interesting thing also is when you look at this situation where George goes into this, basically, as you said, uh, Rob, bankrolling himself here. Uh, and, Ro, you're bringing up American Zotrope. Uh, you know, I mean, it was his film, THX 1138, that basically kind of broke that group up in some regard. So, you know, it would be wouldn't have been shocking if George was a little gun shy to, you know, to do put himself at such a risk once again, yet he did it. And obviously, you know, it turned out for him, but um, it, what a, what a crazy situation to put yourself in what bravery to, to be able to uh, be willing or what belief in what you're putting out there anyway, to be able to uh, go through that again. Yeah. And uh, you know, preparing for this show, it was a good timing to watch empire of dreams again. Uh, and that is such a good doc. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've watched that. Uh, it never yeah. gets old, I don't think. Um, and uh, to hear George talk about it, it, it's amazing. That autonomy that, you know, and Tom talked about it, the, the bravery, uh, wanting to keep himself autonomous from, you know, 20th Century Fox and make the movies that he wanted to make. Um, I, I would go out on the limb and to say, you know, that approach, uh, if you tried it today, Star Wars would not be made. I, I don't think that's even possible uh, to do in today's, um, you know, Hollywood. Um, but uh, to be able to stand up to them and and say, hey, this is my movie. I'm going to make it my way. That That is the epitome of bravery. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what you can say about the original trilogy or the prequel trilogy. Uh, love them or hate them. Those are George's movies. And that came by the way he financed them. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, it's an interesting thing when you look at kind of the time that the Star Wars films, the, this original trilogy were getting made, especially the original Star Wars. Um, there were a number of things going on. You had Hollywood had had been kind of uh, in a metamorphosis, right? It was not people who knew about filmmaking that were any longer running these studios. It was it was the guys in suits and, and they were making business decisions instead of creative decisions. Uh, and so that was a lot of what fed into George and his feelings about that whole environment and not really wanting to be a part of it. He, he didn't like the idea that the studio could have, uh, the right of last edit for his film. I know that, um, you know, that he very, very much was protective of his creativity, uh, and did not like the idea that anyone was going to mess with his finished product other than maybe George, um, uh, as we've seen through all of the edits that have been done, especially the original star Wars. But, uh, you know, Getting out there, the things that you're talking about, the the fact that you really couldn't do that in in Hollywood today, uh, so much of that is because of the things that he had done back then. Uh, they the studio was willing to give away the licensing on the original Star Wars film because they really didn't think that it had a lot of value. And I think anyone who knows anything about Lucasfilm and Star Wars merchandise in general, uh, looking at the the rooms behind you know several of us here, uh, there's certainly money to be made in Star Wars merchandising, and and that was really what, as I said before bankrolled his ability to go into this prequel uh and the other factor that was going on as he was going into the making of empire was that not only was he uh you know kind of turning around and, and doubling down on on the success of the initial film but he was also trying to build lucasfilm into a business as roe said uh he was very much a believer in having this the technology and and having it in-house and in a lot of ways creating a lot of the technology he needed because he was so far ahead of his time uh and so he was actually trying to create this company and uh, i think we'll get into it a little bit later but you know that whole idea that um a lot of the things that that people have issue with in later star wars films are because 
there were companies behind them. They, you know, and those companies had balance sheets and they had things that were at risk. And in this case, as we said, it was George. It was George and his money, and he was willing to risk it, whereas most companies are unwilling to, you know, potentially bankrupt themselves on a film. Uh, so there's a mindset there that I would argue kind of starts to go away uh, after Empire Strikes Back. And uh, you see by the time we get to Return of the Jedi that, that there is uh, thought being given to the merchandising and, and additional concerns beyond just the filmmaking. So this is really, you know, kind of the last of the pure Star Wars films uh, where it really just is about the story and the creativity. Uh, and again, I would argue that that's one of the things that makes this such a important and influential film. Yeah, I, I, you know, obviously the marketing was a big deal. I remember being a kid, you know, back in 1980, and everybody, everybody was lucky enough to afford them. Anyways, had to have that next thing that came out, that next uh, Kenner toy or whatever that came out. And I, um, it was, it, it, you know, and you just didn't have that from films before that time. So it was even more amazing to come up with that concept that you know we can make these into these uh, little small action figures and these settings and whatever else and and, and move it into another uh, directions and find this as another way to make money and just progress from there. It just, it went out from there, t-shirts, um, all the different stuff. And yes, you said it, I mean, you look behind you guys and you have so much various uh, different merchandise from, a, it's, it's incredible to think about what this market that Star Wars has created. And it all started with, of course, the original film, later titled A New Hope, and then uh, moving forward, The Empire Strikes Back. And now they're all titled I Hope I Can Afford It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things that uh, I always marvel at is the fact that uh, George, you know, thought ahead. You know, he obviously wanted to do this trilogy. Uh, he uh, had some success with American Graffiti, but even before that, uh, THX 1138 was not, um, you know, uh, as successful as he had hoped, uh, especially for the, you know, uh, American Zoetrope's first uh, ring into the filmmaking business. Um, you're a film that almost broke them. Um, but, uh, you know, he was able to kind of pick up the pieces and, and, and figure out that uh, he is going to need his own money. He doesn't want to be able to count on other people's money. And, uh, you know, this is how he became probably the biggest independent filmmaker out there. And obviously, you know, if we talk about bankrolling the prequels, he just wrote himself a check for that. I mean, who does that? You know, that he was, uh, you know, th the biggest independent filmmaker out there that, uh, you know, whole, didn't rely on, on um, you know, money from the studios. You know, obviously he had to rely on them for uh, distribution, but uh, in, at the end of the day, you know, he just, it was him. So yeah. I, I, I love that about it. And you called him, uh, you, you made the comparison to Han Solo. I never actually heard that comparison, but uh, it's actually very fitting because, you uh, what he did give up in any creative rights, he, you know, he said he was going to own the merchandising from there on out. And they were like happy to give that up because they thought it was going to be, they all thought it was going to be a flop. Every, everybody, you know, the guys, the guys in Fox that thought they were all going to lose their job from this. Uh, they all thought it was going to be a flop. So like, yeah, okay, we'll give you the merchandising. And then they, they, you know, had to find somebody, gave it to Kenner, Kenner who made some of the uh, cornier uh, toys at the time and no, nothing fancy. Uh, you know, they had never 
done anything in that market before. Um, just barely. Um, but, uh, you know, they weren't ready for it at all. Cause they thought, they thought it was going to be a flop too. Uh, they, they saw the movie like, Oh, this is okay. But they, you know, so nobody was ready. So it really was the ultimate gamble saying, yeah, just give me the merchandising. Uh, and it, it paid off. Um, again, I think it's an understatement to say George is a visionary. I think when people think about that, they're thinking certainly along the lines of the technology uh, and and the way that he told the story. But certainly in terms of things like the merchandising, uh, he was really kind of seeing, like we said, about 10, 10, 15 years down the road from where everyone else was. Uh, and, and we can get into a whole section of this podcast about how what he did in these films really transformed Hollywood as a whole. I mean, uh, they were lending out that technology and, and people were coming to Lucasfilm and Skywalker Sound and ILM uh, for production on their own films. So it, it did transform that entire environment. But one of the things I do want to talk about, I mean, we're talking Empire Strikes Back. It's, it is one of those films that is just the ultimate sequel uh, at a time when sequels weren't really a big thing. You had The Godfather that had had Godfather 1 and 2 at this particular point in time but sequels weren't really a, a thing that was done in hollywood and then to double down uh and and risk uh make a risky decision like having a sequel that ended on what would not be considered a high note for the quote-unquote good guys uh was a huge risk and um uh, you know nowadays we we take it for granted sequels are everywhere but at the time that was just not not something you really saw in hollywood um Tom, what would you have to say about sequels? Well, I mean, well, for one thing, yeah, they, they just weren't seen before that. And then later on, most sequels were, you know, inferior products to what is you know, just pretty much a cash grab to try and uh, build off of the success of the original film. And even to the today, I think we still see a lot of that out there. But, um, yeah, it was incredible to think about. And, you know, for this to be a trilogy or whatever, not only for it to land end on a, a down note but also to end on a cliffhanger um leaving audiences when you're not used to seeing sequels you know i we know that george wanted this whole thing to be serial based and that's basically what he went through you know in each movie but also at the end of you know of uh of empire strikes back is it was it was serial based that you wanted to come back and visit the theater again to see the next episode, see the next short, see the next Buck Rogers, whatever the case may be. He wanted the same process. And his success with the original film allowed him to do a little bit here. Although, let's be honest, a lot of people, when they first saw this film, because uh, it ended on such a sort of a sour note, you know, the heroes didn't exactly come away winners. Uh, there were a lot of people shocked and didn't know how to handle it and didn't necessarily like this film to begin with until they saw it some more time understood it would the story was closed out with return of the jedi did it uh, subvert your expectations <laughs> leading the witness <laughs> and it's 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 fun to hear you know interesting to hear Irvin Kirshner talk about this um he wanted nothing to do with it whatsoever um you know like you said rob sequels um they were they were just number 2 at the time and not expected to be anything uh, of any value whatsoever. So, and Irvin Kershner, he, you know, he took his movies very seriously. He was more character driven um, than story driven. He wanted nothing to do. He's like Star Wars too. Like you, you had a, the biggest movie of all time come out and how are you supposed to top that? You can't top that. Uh, so he wanted, you know, he was like, you're, you're setting me up to fail. I don't want anything to do with this. Um, and he had to be, 
convinced by his agent to do it. And uh, he reluctantly came on board after that. With lots of warnings from George about what to expect. I mean, I mean, even George wasn't really blowing sunshine for Irving Kirshner. Uh, you know, he warned him about whatever your timelines are, expect that they're going to slide, expect things to go wrong with the droids, etc. cetera. Uh, and, you know, when you look at the challenges that this film had, they were, they were uh, numerous, really. Uh, they took a risk in the sense that, you know, they had an ice planet that they wanted to film as part of the film. Uh, they chose a location up in Norway called Fence that was kind of out in the middle of nowhere near a, near a glacier. And it just so happens that they decided to shoot this film uh, at a point in time where it was they were experiencing the worst winter in 100 years. And that didn't just impact Norway. It was, it was really all throughout Europe. So, um, you know, there's lots of great stories we can get into about that. But there were a whole... Uh, dearth of things that occurred uh, kind of early on in the making of this film and, and going into it. And, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about some of the, some of the early setbacks they had and some of the things that uh, they really couldn't have envisioned that, that uh, put them behind the eight ball right from the beginning. Well, one thing, uh, you know, I, I guess, I guess I had known, but I, I just uh, had forgotten the original uh, writer uh, for for this, we, we talked about uh, Lawrence Kasdan, and he did a lot of it. But uh, I think uh, her name was Lee Brackett. Yeah, um, she was uh, you know she was the original uh, screenplay writer for Empire Strikes Back, and uh, you know she had just finished uh, her copy of it and turned it into George. And just two or three weeks later, uh, she unfortunately died from cancer. Uh, so you know the the whole thing kind of got off to a, a sour note with that. And they, you know, they immediately had to start picking up the pieces uh, from from her loss. Absolutely. The other one of the other kind of cool stories about that is that despite the fact that Lucas really didn't think that her script was kind of uh, in line with the vision that he had uh, to the point where when he was about halfway through reading it, he was just kind of writing no next to entire scenes. But uh, he has always been known for being very generous to his actors and, and to the people who are in his employ, uh, certainly with, with points and bonuses uh, given out at the end of the original Star Wars film uh, and ever since. And one of the cool things about this was uh, despite the fact that she had passed uh, and he wasn't really planning on using much of her script, he still made an agreement with her estate to give her uh, partial writing credit uh, as well as the fact that he gave her compensation beyond what was original contracted so uh you know just a class move on his part and i would definitely you know when you when you see things like the the hardships that george put up with uh when the prequels came out and all the the vitriol that came from the fan community uh you know you got to balance that against the fact that he was not only a visionary and and pushing the envelope maybe a little bit too far at that point but he's always just a super generous guy uh and and as we talked about you know made contributions not just monetarily but technology wise um that still impact everything you watch today I think a lot of people forget that, and I think uh, a lot of people kind of, um, you know, weigh on the side of just being, you know, I don't know, just super critical of the stuff that, you know, they're critical about. Um, and yes, you know, even when he did the uh, the remastered uh, theater releases and the special editions, you know, uh, his main actors got another check. Where, you know, it seemed like, uh, I think I read somewhere that, uh, you know, he could have just done it and kept the proceeds and released it. But, uh, you know, he was uh, able to uh, generate enough money that everybody got a little taste. And that that's just, that's fantastic. And not only that, you know, when he sold um, Lucasfilm, I mean, 
you know, that entire pot went to his uh, uh, an educational charity. Um, and obviously it's his educational charity, but, uh, you know, still, you know, four point whatever um, the, the money that was spent on that um, is just an immense amount of money to uh, throw at uh, at any charity. Right. So, yeah, kudos to, to him for not only being a visionary director, but uh, a humanitarian. Um, and uh, that's that's why I think we should celebrate him as not only a director, but, you know, a, a smart businessman. Agreed. Now, I mean, one of the things that was kind of a, a byproduct of the success of Star Wars was that, you know, they got to the end of, of Star Wars, it got released, it was successful. Lucas was kind of not sure what was going on. Meanwhile, he's got this entire team of visual effects guys that he had formed uh, to help with that film that were kind of floating in the wind. And uh, as a byproduct, he ended up losing most of them uh, who had gone off and kind of fil- uh, formed their own company called Apogee. Uh, Ralph McQuarrie, who did a lot of the concept art, got picked up. Uh, a number of the people People that he had had in his employee previously got pulled into work on Battlestar, uh, later Battlestar Galactica, that that uh, was really a competing uh, and somewhat derivative product uh, competing against Star Wars. So, you know, right from the beginning, he's got all these issues with staff. He had issues with uh, his key cast. We had Luke, uh, Luke Skywalker, actor Mark Hamill, who had gotten in a car accident. Uh, Harrison Ford, who I think a lot of people at this point know that he was not super interested in in Han Solo kind of being a character that stuck around uh, and was only willing to sign for one film. Um, and then Alec Guinness, who, you know, he had planned on bringing back, had some medical issues. And to top it all off, his replacement for him is essentially a glorified Muppet. Uh, which originally was going to be called Minch Yoda. And I know that we kind of, Brad and I uh, had kind of been posting some stuff uh, regarding that on Twitter uh, leading into this episode. But there were a lot of early challenges, really even before production began, uh, that that did not exactly set them up for smooth sailing right off the get-go. I mean, you talk about the, the money that uh, ILM got, you know, with their success. But at the same time, uh, they went from uh, Van Eyes to I think it's Marin County yep. uh, that they went to, so you know they were they were happy they were elated that they finally got some money to work with because as you know Roe was saying they were they were broke to begin with uh, for the original Star Wars movie, so they were ecstatic that they actually had money to work with this time for all their props and special effects, but they were also moving from Van Nuys to to Marin County, so that's why George had to take himself out of the director role. Because he's trying to manage all these things that you're talking about and the, the, you know, the birth and the growth and the movement of ILM at the same time. Yeah, we all know what happens to people that are uh, supremely talented. You've always got people out there wanting to pick them off. And as you said, I mean, moving up to Marin County, up up by the San Francisco area, uh, you were going to have people who uh, wanted to work with you but were not willing to make that move. I mean, that's a pretty significant change in location, and, and you're kind of hanging your hat on Lucasfilm and ILM and what they're going to be doing in the future. Uh, you're not kind of down there in the epicenter of where all these films are getting made. So, um, you know. But certainly, I think, you know, Tom and Roe, you've got uh, experience in the entertainment industry and, uh, you know, being someplace where where those options are around uh, has got to factor pretty heavily into, uh, you know, where you want to where you want to be located. Yeah, I mean, location, location, location. It's a you know, it's a common uh, adage. Uh, It's cliche, but it's very pertinent, especially when uh, you're dealing with that sort of thing. 
And, you know, the fact that uh, Lucas wanted to stay away from that obviously was very deliberate. He didn't want to be part of the, uh, you know, the establishment, you know, coming from that counterculture, uh, you know, uh, his his hippie filmmaker buddies, uh, you know, it, it wasn't something that he was eager to run to. So, uh, you know, staying up in Northern California where he lived uh, was a no brainer for him. Right. Again, another uh, time when Lucas rolled the dice. I mean, the fact is, uh, most of these studios, uh, I live very close to there. You go down to, you know, the the Van Nuys area, the Burbank area, all that. They're just all within. You could walk between the studios down there uh, to be located down in that situation. In these these producers, these filmmakers, you know, most of the time they're like, do we want to fly all the way to Marin County to someone who, you know, maybe their best work is already past them. You know, have they already done the best thing they can do when we could just go right around the corner here? Uh, it, it was, it was definitely a gamble to move away from all of that. Yet he, he wanted that he wanted to be in this area where he could put all these pieces together, be in control of this area without all the extra fluff that is Hollywood, which Hollywood is so much fluff that, uh, it, it was, it, positioned him really well and then you know the fact that this, this success of another film uh like empire strikes back especially with all the problems that we saw i mean we just want to talk about you talked about the snowstorm for hot i mean having to figure out how to do some of these green screen work with no green it's all white you know how to try and put that out there i mean that was some of the troubles that they had to go through to develop the new effects for this film it's it's incredible what they accomplished and it's interesting uh, when you bring that up uh, and you think about all of the on-site issues that, uh, that they've they've had over the course of all the Star Wars films, but certainly in the original Star Wars film and in Empire Strikes Back, uh, sandstorms in the Tunisian desert uh, that would wreck entire sets. They've got, uh, you know, the worst winter in 100 years and they're stuck up in Fence, Norway in this hotel way out in the boondocks uh, to the point where the glacier they wanted to shoot on, they couldn't even get to most days. And then you've got the the issues that most people don't even think of, which is if you're going to be shooting over multiple days, you've got to wait until the lighting and the the backdrop and everything is more or less uh, the same, so that that film that you put together when you when you edit it is going to kind of flow together, and it just pulls me into it's a little bit of an aside but i don't know if you guys have been watching the the gallery series that is on disney plus uh but this past week the episode on the technology and uh and the new technology that they have developed for the mandalorian which are these wraparound led screens um what do they call it it's the um it's a weird the, yeah it's a one word the volume and the volume yeah. yeah uh and and the fact that they can now recreate locations without having to send the entire cast out there without having to send the crew out there without having to deal with the weather i mean they can sit there and recreate the exact same conditions and shoot you know they were talking about having a a 12-hour sunrise uh, i was gonna to say that against. yeah uh you know that that is once again another example of how even though George has has retired, they are still in the business of coming up with these visionary pieces of technology that are going to change the way uh, film and and TV basically get produced. Uh, and it just cannot be understated how powerful something like that is. And it wasn't. It's not like they just thought of it a couple of years ago. I mean, George had been wanting to do that since the '90s when he was doing the uh, Indiana Jones Chronicles on TV. 
you know, that was basically his uh, his practice round for the the new um, the new films that he wanted to do, including you know doing a Star Wars TV show. Even back then, he wanted to be able to do these uh, films uh, on a smaller budget. Uh, he just, you know, he, he couldn't get to it. But it, it's, again, it's something that he was thinking about way back then. And, um, you know, now they're doing it on The Mandalorian. And uh, you hear Dave Filoni talk about how George was very, very influential in that type of technology. And I love it. It's, uh, you know, you guys know, know that I'm a, a big, you know, technology freak. And watching that episode on Disney Gallery sends you know chills through my spine it's uh it's just fascinating to to watch it's really great to look and and you know even the game the the uh, game rendering technology ilm was doing that uh, a couple of years ago just experimenting with uh, the game engine technology with uh you know being able to produce these scenes with that technology just to see you know how they would at least start developing that technology and it's it's fascinating it's fascinating and it looks amazing on screen, but to have the actual producers and the cast members talk about the fact that, you know, there is a physical set on the ground that has to kind of meld into that background. But, uh, you know, they would turn the screens off and and they didn't know where the screen ended and where the, uh, the physical set started. Uh, and that's someone who's standing a few feet from it. So it certainly uh, works for what we see in the finished product on screen, especially after they're able to apply, you know, the little bit of CGI that has to be done after that. I, I probably shouldn't say a little bit. I'm sure Yoshi will probably have a issue to take with me over that one. But, uh, you know, when you look at that, had they had this ability back during the time that, that Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back were, were being made, uh, they would have been able to keep these productions more on on uh, schedule and maybe not deal with the level of stress that they had to deal with. It, it would be interesting to see uh, how that technology holds up. I know, you know, episode one, two, and three, the prequels, if you watch them now because of the technology of the time, uh, you know, there was a lot of green screen um, with the actors, and a lot of people will claim that it doesn't hold up well. People are watching Star Wars Empire Return of the Jedi because of a, a lot of the stuff was practical. There were a lot of sets. Um, they came up with the technology, and for me, I think it held, holds up uh, fairly better than the newer films mm -hmm. um, because of that. It, it would be interesting to find out, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, how the Mandalorian holds up uh, and see where the technology lies. But I think it's uh, it's becoming almost as seamless as it can be. Uh, and, you know, we've had Dominic Pace on the show talking about that very technology and what he went through shooting his scenes in the Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I hope I'm alive, uh, you know, in the future to, to kind of see where that technology leads, because it has been quite a ride. Yeah, Brad. Uh, so from the filming, the uh, the filming that they had done for Empire. I mean, there's a lot of great stories that have come out of that. Are there any, especially watching something like Empire of Dreams, were there any that jumped out at you as kind of your favorite stories of the the gaffes or funny things that occurred during production? Oh, I mean, the, yeah, there, there's a lot of gaffes, um, but you know, the you you mentioned Norway, and you still got to give it to that one. If you know you're watching Empire Strikes Back and you're seeing Luke trudge through the snow and pass out you would have no idea that that was being filmed from the inside of the front door of the hotel because nobody else could get out the front door but you know mark said well we gotta do what we gotta do and uh he got his butt out there and he did what he had to do 
Um, and, you know, the, the whole thing is just a case study in and in a adapt and overcome. You mentioned Tunisia in the first one. I think that was the worst sandstorm in history or something like that when they, uh, when they filmed in Tunisia. And then you had the worst blizzard of all time when they went up to Norway to film there. Uh, so, no, you know, they were, they were facing the, you can tell how much George wanted to put these films out because they were just adapting and overcoming the entire time. I just want to get back uh, real quick to the, to the gallery as well. And, uh, you know, you got to give it to Kathleen Kennedy. She, she does take a lot of flack, uh, these days, but, uh, people forget that she's been with George for a very long time. Uh, she was there during the times of empire strikes back. And when he was getting started with, uh, you know, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the lost Ark, And, uh, you know, since then as well and on a number of other projects and you know kathleen had some pretty good stories as well as you know seeing george as a visionary you know him talking about the volume as rose said many years ago before is even a thing um so you know she had some pretty good stories to tell too but as far as uh you know the empire strikes back and in, in these scenes I, I have to give it to the to the hoth scenes coming straight from norway tom do you have any favorites uh, that jump out at you oh i mean i i just love still to this day and i know it's it, we were talking about this modern, modern technology now with the volume, which is incredible. If you haven't seen the Disney Gallery episode, go look at it. My mouth was agape the whole time watching that episode because it's, it's amazing. Scenes that you couldn't imagine are are, are the on uh, being shown on these screens uh, are there. Um, but like if you look and you go through some of this and how seamlessly almost you look at some of the drawings of Ralph McQuarrie are as background artist, Matt Painting. Uh, within Empire Strikes Back and before that Star Wars, um, can you pick them out now? Sure, but it's still it's it's still amazing to to look and say, oh, I can tell that's actually his artwork. That's how good it was, and that's how, like I said, seamlessly they were able to to add it to these scenes within all these wonderful special effects they're doing. Rose gazing into the future. <laughs> He's trying to no, pick I, out his I, favorite. I totally agree. Yeah. You know, it's. Uh, I get a lot of flack uh, from one of our chat groups regarding uh, comedy in my sci-fi. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not really, I'm not really into the Orville, um, uh, you know, shows like that. That's one of my biggest issues I had with the Last Jedi. Um, but um, you know, you put on or, or you you watch The Empire Strikes Back, and there's just something about that film that. Uh, I love the fact that they treat it with respect, the, the, the actors, the gravitas of their acting. Um, they're dealing with some major stuff, and you're just like on the edge of your seat watching this, this unfold from, you know, from the, the battle on Hoth to, you know, Luke battling it out with Vader, uh, Han Solo getting frozen in carbonite. I mean, they're not messing around. And that's that's one of the reasons that I love this film so much, um, because as you can see, I take Star Wars seriously and I love when Star Wars takes Star Wars seriously. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, when when Star Wars is successful with their comedy, it is literally the the sarcastic, snappy, off the cuff comments. It's not, uh, you know, the 
the cheesy kind of played up bits. It's it's slapstick. the quick lines, right? It's this. It's yeah. It's not slapstick comedy. It is the quick one-liners, and uh, you know, certainly within this film, Harrison Ford and his "I know" response to Princess Leia, which is an iconic line and and something that you know it's on T-shirts and it's quoted by everyone. And that was something that George Lucas absolutely hated. Uh, and it wasn't until Harrison Ford dragged him out to one of the the pre-release screenings and the audience actually loved it. Uh, Lucas basically had to admit defeat and, and allow it to stay in the film. But, you know, there were there were other things about this film that really put it at risk if they weren't pulled off. And I think among those, certainly Yoda would have to be at the top of the list. I, I kind of think back to, um, you know, Mary Poppins and the animated penguins uh, in terms of taking something that's not part of a live action movie and making it work within a live action film. And Lucas was doing the same thing here. He was taking a Jim, Jim Henson puppet, Muppet, for all intents and purposes, uh, Jim Henson wasn't available to, to do the voice work and Frank Oz was doing the puppeteering. Um, but you know, your entire film hinges on the believability of that character. And if they don't pull that off, no matter how awesome the rest of it is, it's going to end up being a failure. Uh, and that had to be incredibly stressful. I mean, certainly reading the making of books and, and watching things like empire of dreams, you know, that that pressure was on them to, uh, to make that work. And, uh, I think that we probably could all agree that they were very successful in that regard. Yeah. And just, uh, you know, we posted a video a few days ago. A lot of people don't know that, uh, Frank Oz almost wasn't the voice of Yoda. Uh, George didn't want him for the voice. And, uh, of course, George being the indecisive guy that he is sometimes, you know, he, it was about a year working on the voice and he finally went back to Frank. Um, so, you know, thank the force that that happened. And just going back to the comedy real quick, uh, and, you know, the comedy that you guys are talking about, Irvin Kirshner talked about this. He said we had to make it funny, but not slapstick. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a and this is what Rose referred. There's a what? Probably 10 to 15 minutes where there is an ongoing joke about the hyperdrive <laughs> and whether they fixed the hyperdrive or didn't fix the hyperdrive, you know, between, uh, you know, Han Solo saying they fixed it or, or uh, Lando saying they, they fixed it. Um, you know, it's not his fault. I mean, that's just genuine comedy. It's, they're talking about the hyperdrive, uh, a component of a, of a spaceship. And that stuff's hilarious. I still, I, you know, how we've all lost count how many times we've seen Empire. I still laugh at that part, the fact that Lando thought he had it fixed. And, you know, of course, the Empire disabled it. You know, and that's that's the comedy they were able to they, they didn't force it. You know, they just let it. And that's the beauty of letting Irvin, you know, being character driven. They just let it happen. So Billy D. Williams pulled, pulled that off perfectly. It's funny, all the little things that they did in this film to to accommodate needing to create a certain uh, certain look to a scene that you don't really think of until you uh, go back and watch it, knowing that they're there. And the one that jumps out to me is Princess Leia, who was, you know, Carrie Fisher's 5'1". You've got Harrison Ford, he's 6'1". So they had, like, placed her on boxes uh, when she was acting against him to kind of level out the height. And certainly in the hallways of the Rebel base, uh, there's those panels that are kind of set in the middle of the floor and it wasn't until I had read Making of Empire Strikes Back that I realized what they had done with those. And you go back and see it now and, and you see it every time. But, uh, you know, it's it's amazing in the sense that it doesn't register with you. Uh, the inside of the Rebel base, I mean, they they shot that in a soundstage and it was all coated with salt crystal uh, to make it look like, you know, glitter like snow. But it was terribly uh 
awful to work in for the for the cast and for the uh, the people working the set. Um, and yet they were in there for hours and hours and hours every day uh, working because they wanted to make the most authentic product that they possibly could. And uh, I think that is the kind of stuff that comes off when you watch it. It is, you know, the quality of every single shot. And you can attribute a lot of that to Kirshner uh, and not just Lucas himself, because Kirshner was certainly very exacting with how he liked to shoot a picture, sometimes to Lucas's frustration. Um, but uh, you can't, again, argue with the, uh, the way that it worked out. There's a lot of uh, films who have sequels that aren't uh, there are not up to par. Um, sequels are usually, you know, even before sequels are very, uh, you know, unmatched when it comes to the originals. Obviously, you've got The Empire Strikes Back uh, that is considered by many as the best, you know, Star Wars film out there, and it's a sequel. You've got uh, The Wrath of Khan on the Star Trek side. Again, you know, considered to be one of the best Star Star Treks uh, out there, and it's a sequel. Um, yeah, there, there's. Uh, it's interesting. I was just listening to uh, you know the guys over at the Salty Nerd podcast, and they were talking about how you know these films are are not made by fans of that franchise. Nicholas Meyer was not a Star Trek fan. He was a filmmaker. Uh, you know, Irvin Kirshner again uh, didn't want to do it. So uh, you know. When it comes to these characters, you know, I, I think, you know, and George has said it, you know, flashy special effects are nothing without the story. And I think, um, you know, you know, God bless him for that uh, philosophy, because, you know, the story is what counts and the story should come first. Um, let's I mean, they caught lightning in a bottle as well with the trio oh, yeah. of Mark Hamill, Gary Fisher, Harrison Ford. I mean, you just happened to get those three together that worked so perfectly. And you want to throw in Peter Mayhew as well and his portrayal of Chewbacca and all he brings to it as a masked character, how much emotion he brings to the equation. Uh, it's just incredible. And then you know, I want to go back to Rob's first talk uh, statement about Yoda and how much that is the crux of this film, the believability that a puppet uh, is this Jedi master, you know, when you, you look at him at first, you're like, what is this thing, this little thing? And by the end of it, you're completely buying into it. You're buying in that he has all these years of the force behind him, that he know he knows it all. He he knows what he's doing. He has been a teacher of Jedi for for eons. It's it's really incredible. And uh, yeah, yes, uh, definitely a credit to Kirshner, but Frank Oz, and I know that uh, we discussed this on our show when we did our Star Wars Remembered series, looking back at The Empire Strikes Back, that um, Lucas actually tried to get Frank Oz uh, nominated for an Oscar for this because of such the portrayal that they had, the fact that people were able to buy into this being a living, breathing character. It's it's really incredible. How, how could they not recreate that magic for episode one was always my question. I mean, is it me or did 1980 Yoda always look a hundred times better than 1999 Yoda? I don't, I mean, and that's a testament to the Empire Strikes Back. I, I guess they just couldn't recreate it. I was so thankful when they went CGI. I mean, that was one of those good changes that they made right. uh, for episode one. I just can't understand how they couldn't replicate that magic with Yoda. It was I, the hair plug they gave Yoda. And yeah. Hair club for whatever species he is. <laughs> but again, that's just a testament to the fact that you were invested in that story, whether he was a puppet or a CGI or whatever. You just didn't focus on that the fact that he was a puppet. He was instrumental in telling the story, and we are all in 100%. I love it. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I There was actually a post on Twitter uh, last week, and they were talking about, you know, which of these films do you think Mark Hamill gave his best performance in? And they had Empire, they had Return of the Jedi, they had uh, Last Jedi. And my response to that was the fact that I, I would argue with anyone that Empire Strikes Back is the greatest performance he ever gave within a Star Wars film, uh, possibly ever. Uh, because of the fact that for most of that film, he was acting against a droid and he was acting against a Muppet. And if he fails at, at giving an accurate portrayal and making you believe in them as characters, then the film just flat out doesn't work. And when you read about the fact that you've got Frank Oz down there underneath the soundstage working the puppet and he's doing the Yoda lines, but Mark Hamill can't even really hear him half the time. Uh, the, the performance that he gave against these inanimate objects, he's hanging upside down in a cave. He's nearly the entire film, except for the very beginning and the very end. He is by himself just kind of doing it all on his own. And, and it's probably the closest thing at that time that you come to these actors that are working against green screens where, you know, at least he had something that he could see. Uh, and I, and I would argue that for the prequels, you know, one of the challenges the actors had is that they really didn't have a lot of experience working against green screens. They have to act against something that's not there. Uh, and that then, you know, comes back and factors into that conversation we had about the volume where the actors are saying, being able to see this so that we all react to what we're seeing the same way, uh, goes a long way to selling a performance. But, uh, again, Mark Hamill and what he did in Empire Strikes Back, I would argue that, that he is the reason when we look at Yoda, we see a creature, uh, of unknown species as opposed to just some puppet that's being uh, voiced by a guy under the floor. There was a 40, well, I think it was 40 days that he was the only actor uh, listed to be present for filming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was, you know, and it was in the probably the worst set that you could that, that you could want with the with the uh, I think they stunk in there. There was the fog in there. Yeah. Of course, he got bit by a snake. There's a pretty funny clip where he <laughs> got uh, uh, bit by a snake and he went a little un Jedi like there for a second after he got bit. Uh, Gila monsters and everything else, and the and the puppet that he's working with. And, you know, forty days he he was the show, and uh, he he nailed it. From you know his you could see his progression from you know just you know being in in Rogue Squadron and taking down Adats at the very you know at the beginning to realizing the worst villain in the in the galaxy is your father, and uh, he sold it from start to finish. Right. Yeah, and you throw in the fact that they, you know, yes, the the worst villain in the galaxy is your father, is a masked character portrayed by David Prowse, who you're not getting any read off of because of the mask, so you can't really. And he, the, David Prowse doesn't even know what the real story is either, <laughs> so you also have to play off of that because Mark Hamill finds that out at the last moment. So, mm-hmm. uh, just one more. I, I agree with you, Rob. It was a fantastic yeah. performance by Hamill. Does that mean we have to get into the whole leak tracker that they had running uh, during the, the filming of Empire Strikes Back where they were tracking, uh, they, they would track back leaks for the film back to who had initially leaked it. And David Prowse was far and away uh, the guy who most of the leaks could be traced back to. The guy, you know, uh, not that he's a bad guy. I think he was just one of those guys that when you got him in a conversation, he couldn't help but say something. So uh, certainly the uh, no, I am your father line that, that gets delivered in Bespin, he was not in on that in the least. He didn't find out until after the fact, uh, and for good reason, because uh, they were able to keep that a secret right up to the very end. Yeah, you can well, there's, still a, get there's an magazines. article. Yeah, th- there was an article too that uh, had David Prowse 
basically say, um, I think Vader should be Luke's father. Yeah. Um, even before, uh, I think it was in 78. Yeah. Um, I think it's an old Starlog magazine or, or, or Fangoria or something. But, uh, yeah, the, you know, for whatever reason, you know, he kind of uh, fell off the radar with Lucasfilm uh, uh, because of a few things there. But, uh, you know, whatever. I actually got a chance to go see him speak uh, probably about 10 years ago in Grand Rapids. And uh, he definitely had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder about uh, yeah. about George Lucas and, and his experience. But again, I would go back to, you know, Lucas seems to me uh, from the stories that I've heard that he is incredibly loyal to the people that are loyal to him. And, and if you're disloyal to him, then, uh, you know, he's able to pull that ripcord pretty quick, um, <laughs> which, again, in his position, I can completely understand. But uh you know, when when goes back to talking about something like uh, the the delivery of that revelation at the end of Empire Strikes Back that that Vader is Luke's father, um, I would say you know, recalling what I can recall from that time, you don't know if he's telling the truth or not. I mean, to the point where George Lucas was having to uh, deal with child psychologists when writing the script for Return of the Jedi, who were telling him, "You're going to need someone to validate this because everyone's going to assume it's just a lie." Um, Whereas now in, in the current day, everything Kylo Ren said as Supreme Leader was apparently shiny, right? <laughs> Parents were filthy junk traders. That's another that's another podcast, Ren. Oh, sorry. <laughs> even uh, even James Earl Jones didn't believe it. You know, he's right. he, James Earl Jones. Right? You know, he was you know he was one of what two or three people that actually knew the the real story, and he read the script and he assumed what Darth Vader saying was was saying was a lie. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could have, you know, I was, I'm not as old as some of the people in this podcast right now. I was still in the cradle at this time. I couldn't imagine, you know, that three years of waiting to find out whether or not he was actually the father. That must have made for some tremendous talk. And no, no Internet. So nobody can talk to each other about speculation. Nobody can say anything. We just had to, like, grin and bear it. Three years. I mean, the kids today. Jeez. Forget about it. Yeah, but by the same token, we were all young enough where all we cared about was do we get all the cool toys from the film? And then you go out there and you're making your own adventures with your friends. You're not really counting down to the next film. I just, I mean, I don't. Well, I, well, well you. <laughs> you were a little, you were a little bit older than me, but you know, it's it, it is definitely a it's a different uh, a different era we live in where the gap between the films is everyone hypothesizing and speculating and picking apart every trick and super slow-mo in it. Um, and that's not what it was then. I mean, I think uh, when we did the Hyperion uh, kind of uh, Star Wars Remembered series, when we were talking about Phantom Menace, that was really the first time a trailer came out where you could download it on your slow modem and... <laughs> You know, you get a watch it. It was on, I remember them playing the uh, Duel of the Fates on MTV, like nonstop. But, uh, you know, that that was the beginning of kind of the media age for these films. And, and that's not what it was back then. Uh, God, when you go back and listen to the original trailers for these things, they were, you know, the TV spots for them. They're so corny. Do you guys remember seeing like the first trailers for Empire Strikes Back? No. I remember there was a show, and I don't know if it was national, but in Chicago there was a show called The Ray Rayner Show, and he played the trailer like every morning for for a couple of weeks. And I remember, uh, I remember first of all, obviously I fell in love with Star Wars, but the fact that um, there was snow in in this next film 
something that I can relate to that is real because you know Star Wars obviously was you know fantastical and sci-fi and spacious, but now it's like it, it's it it became real because the edits were in snow and they were fighting in snow and obviously Chicago we got a lot of snow mm -hmm. so uh, I just I couldn't wait to recreate all those scenes uh, in my Rogers Park neighborhood backyard with uh, with my buddies so uh, very exciting. Yeah, and talking about the AT-ATs, I mean, that, that is one thing. The way that, that ILM and, uh, you know, the, the guys that created the AT-ATs, they were unsure how to make them move, right? So they end up studying how elephants walk, and that ends up being what they – and I think that's one of the things that works so well about Star Wars. You think about the droids, uh, certainly C-3PO, he's able to speak, but when you have droids like R2-D2 and it's, and it's a combination of organic and Ben Burt's voice and then some sound effects uh, to, to make that – and that is why you feel like you can kind of relate to these droids. You almost understand what they're saying. Uh, and the same thing with all these mechanical creatures, the chicken walkers, the AT-ATs, they're moving based on organic things that we can relate to. And I feel like in, in our head that just clicks, it makes it, it makes it look natural and that's what sells it. I remember, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, Brad. I was going to say, speaking of adapting, there's a, uh, I remember a while ago hearing about the ad ads, there was a spot where the, the, they were messing up and they actually use that footage. And I think it's the, I think it's the moment where the, Adad backs up and shoots a uh, speeder with the, mm -hmm. with a laser. Yep. Uh, and I think, yeah. And that was, I think that was actually the, the model messing up at that time, but they used that footage and re repurposed that. So it came off as a, you know, backstep and a laser shot. And that's just amazing. And hundred percent, like Rose said, hundred percent buy-in on that. And, and I mean, let's be honest about the Adat walkers. I mean, in reality, they don't make a lot of sense, you know, as far as a, a battlecraft, but they just look cool. And yes, you can relate to them. I was blessed enough uh, back in 1980 that I had some connections with uh, USC Film School. I got to see Empire Strikes Back about two days before it came out because George Lucas was so tied to USC. So I got to go to the schoolyard and tell everybody. But And what did I focus on? I didn't focus on... Uh, no, I am your father. I focused on you should have seen these walkers. They are so cool. I tried to explain them to my buddies because as an 11 year old kid, that was the most amazing thing to me. Yeah. And I think, I mean, right there with them, the Tauntauns, right? I think they took the back half of a horse, uh, running to, to model, <laughs> to model, uh, what the Tauntauns, uh, moved like. And, you know, certainly that, that's one of those things that kind of sticks out when you watch it today. Uh, it maybe doesn't hold up quite as well because, you know, you can pick up on some of the stop motion, but, uh, I do think that there's a lot to be said about the original trilogy films standing up uh, primarily because they use so many practical effects and they were done at such a high level uh, that it really, uh, there's not many places in there where you look at it and go, all right, that's a little herky jerky that, that sticks out to me. Um, and I still love the Tauntauns. I mean, God, I, you, you get some of the pictures of, uh, of Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and, and Harrison Ford uh, standing around. You got Mark up on the, the Tauntaun and the other two kind of, you know, making faces down below it. Um, it, it was just an incredible creature and, and another thing that, that completely sold the film for me. Oh, and how about the asteroid field? I mean, despite the potato that flies through, I mean, it still is completely believable. I mean, it's actually an amazing piece of, of 
uh, of special effects to have to layer so many of these asteroids in there and have a ship flying, many sh multiple ships flying through them at different times. Uh, just, you know, that's how incredibly ahead of their time they were at ILM. Uh, it was, it's just something that it holds up today. You look at that scene and you really don't see a lot of, of blips in it that you're like, oh, well, that's obviously fake. That's great. No, it's, it still holds up. That was amazing. But we like to talk a lot about the world building. They go from that to being inside one of them. And then you have, uh, you know, a change of pace where you, you have the Minox. So you, you go from this, this macro scale. That's what Empire is so good at is going from the macro to the micro, you know, like instantly. And now they have these winged creatures that are chewing on the power cables. So from being able to go from this, you, you're getting chased by Star Destroyers. So now you have these real life issues of these animals chewing on your power cables that you just fixed. I mean, that's that's the magic of Empire right there. Yeah. And, and to riff off that real quick, I do have to mention uh, David W. Collins, who had done uh, a great series called Star Wars Oxygen with Rebel Force Radio. You can still find those episodes out there. He also has his own show now called The Soundtrack Show. Uh, one of the things that they that he really focuses on in terms of Empire Strikes Back is all the music that was written for the film that they did not use in the final cut of the film. And that Minox scene was one of them with Princess Leia sitting there in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. And there, you know, the music when it was laid over that scene kind of gave you a little bit of advance warning that 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 Minox scare was coming and taking it out gave you more of that jump scare effect uh you know so in some ways one of the brilliant things about Empire Strikes Back was what they chose not to use uh where they kind of let the war the sounds in the world or the surprise stand on its own and and not um and not alert you to it through some of the music that they chose to take out uh, and certainly if you have not gone in and, and looked at the impact of the music on the films, I would highly recommend that to anybody. I know uh, a number of us here have listened to uh, at least some episodes of it. And, uh, you know, it, it adds an entire another layer to these films. Dude, uh, David W. Collins show, the, the three shows that he did on The Empire Strikes Back literally made me cry. Listening to him break down the relationship between the music and the film and the characters, I I was like driving and weeping like a twelve year old girl because that was it's it's great. I, I rushed over and I told Alex about it and he was like like half an hour later he's like dude I'm crying too. I mean the fact the the relationship between the music and 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 the scenes in Star Wars and both and all three films of the original trilogy. Um, are are great. You know, I, I listen to the 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 music in those um, in Empire, especially too, because they're so they're they're telling the narrative mm -hmm. in the music, and they work on you on such a subliminal level that uh, it's it's very powerful stuff. And a lot of people really don't get it. You know, they 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 look at it. Okay, well, this is some music, but there's definitely a deliberateness of, like you said, what they use and what they don't use. I mean, take a look at the, uh, the in in Star Wars and A New Hope, um, right when they're attacking the Death Star, there's like absolutely no music for the very first part, the first section of that attack. It's all Ben Burtt's audio design and the sound effects and the ships and and the dialogue. And then when they go around for that second pass, that music starts to kick in, and so does your your nerve level. It just gets up there so high. So yes, the the music in the Empire Strikes Back is uh, probably one of the best soundtracks for me in in all of Star Wars. There are 
themes there that are beautifully written by John Williams, obviously master composer. You've got the Imperial March. You've got uh, Yoda's theme. It's um, it gives me goosebumps, and it's it's a it's a fascinating fascinating relationship uh, with everybody involved. Sound, uh, you know, visuals, um, you know, John Williams, Ben Burt, uh, you know, directing. It's it's fantastic, and you know, like you said, it's it's the perfect storm, lightning in a bottle. It's not going to happen again. It's the Michael Jordan. It's the Michael Jackson of music. It's it's you know, it's unfortunate. You know, we we were you know, it's fortunate that we lived through that. But, you know, our expectations were way up there when the rest of these films came. And, um, you know, you're never going to feel that. You, you feel Luke's emotion through the music in the I Am Your Father scene. Mm-hmm. You know, through the music that is, that is with that scene, you can feel his entire world just come crashing down. And, uh, you know, the brilliant thing about John Williams is sometimes he'll take his songs and either just slow them down or speed them up so they're you know they're parts of other tracks but they're repurposed for that scene and you know you can just feel that where you know as soon as he says i'm your father and that music kicks in in the back you can literally feel luke's world come crashing down on him watch that scene without the music and you're going to get a different feel to it so yeah that's definitely a testament to john williams right there well, I would definitely say that, you know, whatever your feelings are about all the films that have come out, John Williams and his music have been the thing that tie them all together. His music has been instrumental and no pun intended, uh, you know, to all these films and to the emotion that you feel, uh, even to the point where like in the Phantom Menace at the end, uh, the Augie's Municipal Band that everyone kind of just, you know, sloughs off as being filler music, the ah. Uh, Oh, it's the emperor's theme in, uh, in a major key. So it's basically the emperor's, uh, theme flipped as, as Mm -hmm. chief Palpatine is sitting there, you know, kind of looking at young Anakin. And when you hear, and when, when I heard David Collins break that down the first time, I mean, I got chills. I just got chills again, talking about it. Uh, because again, that was a piece of music that I just thought was throwaway music. And all of a sudden there's a deeper meaning. And that is the kind of stuff that John Williams builds into all these films, the thought that he puts into it. Uh, he always talks about building his music lexicon and certainly uh, Empire, you know, we talk about the fact that when Star Wars came out, everyone thought this was just kind of a one and done. And all of a sudden it is, I'm building something. Uh, and you could really see that intent. You know, this is the first time that the Imperial March showed up. Uh, you know, Vader had his own theme in Star Wars. All of a sudden they've got the Imperial March and that becomes a centerpiece of so much that we see in Star Wars. Uh, and I can't help but believe it might have a, a little something to do with the fact that Roe and Brad are wearing matching uh, Imperial hats. Oh, wait, Roe's got his Mando hat. I thought he had no, his Imperial hat on. Sorry, but. He's <laughs> not rapping. <laughs> oh, there we go. Quick change. Good change. Back on point. So, I mean, uh, what other what other items from uh, Empire really stand out to you guys is is why it is such an important film to you and and why you love it so much. And I think we'll start with Tom on this one because he doesn't look like he's ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not going to go completely down this rabbit hole, but Rob, you know my epiphany that I came to not long ago after about my 300th viewing of <laughs> Empire Strikes Back. The fact that I find at the end of the film. Well, I find that throughout the film that I think it's where Darth Vader reaches his lowest depth and is climbing back to being Anakin Skywalker about midway through that film. 
uh, you start seeing some changes within him, within his actions, especially around Luke, even a little bit around Leia, that he senses some things, that there's some things going on there. Um, you know, and even the direct hit that Luke gives him on his arm is a little chink in his armor, literally, um, showing that he it, it kind of he's impressed by Luke. It's family. He knows that's his son. And he can once he knows that there's somebody else out there with him and that he's impressive, that he has some things to ponder about, even so much as that at the end of the film, he just kind of is walking off the bridge, pondering when he, you know, all throughout the film, he was uh, just wiping out admirals and other part, people that were uh, letting him down throughout. He just, you know, looks at it and just kind of walks off thinking about what is to come. To me, um, that is where we're seeing the. Anakin Skywalker start to re reappear throughout the film. And I could go all through it, but I'm not going to take that time here. <laughs> but you could. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the, the reasons that Empire works so well uh, with Jedi as well, because uh, especially with what you just mentioned, I mean, you can see the combination of that when in Return of the Jedi, when, uh, you know, Vader is faced with Luke uh, on, um, on, um, <clears throat> What the, the hell is the name of the Ewok planet? Oh, Endor. On, End, on Endor. The forest moon of Endor. Um, That's a moon. The forest moon, yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, definitely, you can definitely start to see kind of a change, and uh, that that's that's pretty cool. Those two films, those two scenes work really well together, and you can see the, the transformation of the character of Darth Vader. And for me, Darth Vader is he's my favorite, you know, character of all Star Wars. Uh, and probably of, of any, you know, piece of, of literature or media, um, cause he's just badass. So of course you got the, you got the spiritual, you got the psychological aspects of empire, but you know me, I'm a Navy guy and I'm sorry, the, the, the ships, uh, the Imperial ships and empire, um, I made the mistake one time of saying I was going to stay in the Navy long enough until we had Star Destroyers. <laughs> and since they announced the Space Force a, a year ago, I shouldn't have said that because now we might actually get them. Uh, but seeing, you know, in the in A New Hope, yeah, you obviously you had the Star Destroyer to begin with. Um, but then uh, it was really just the Death Star and, and some, you know, TIE Fighters mostly after that. Seeing the um, Star Destroyers and then seeing the – and I just got goosebumps – seeing the Shadow – coming over the star destroyer right. from the executor. So, cause now they got super star destroyers and seeing the full might of the empire, man, that's cool. And it's just, just to see how massive of a machine the empire is that, that that's one of the reasons, that's one of the main reasons uh, why, why I love empire. I got to tell you. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. That, uh, that's okay. My buddy and I used to call that Darth Vader's Cadillac when it came cruising across <laughs> the screen. Totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, and Brad, to your point about the, you know, the shadow coming over the Star Destroyer, I had the same feeling when they came out with one of the early trailers for Rogue One, where you see the Star Destroyer kind of cruising through the darkness and it's kind of coming out into the light and you realize it's the shadow that's cast by the, by the laser focusing dish that they're installing in the, in the Death Star. I had that same feeling uh, mm -hmm. where it's just, it gives you the feeling for the vastness of that battle station. Um, for me, I would have to say, you know, we've talked about it a little bit earlier in this show. We've got George Lucas, who is the preeminent storyteller. Uh, if he's got a weakness, you know, he, he is a visionary, he's a storyteller, but he doesn't handle writing people very well. And 
this was the film where his storytelling and his vision got matched up perfectly with the way that Lawrence Kasdan writes characters and the way that Irving Kirshner, uh, you know, brings out those performances of characters. And so you had the perfect marriage of all those components. And it was a wonderful story with characters that all had so much depth to them. Uh, you get uh, even a character like Lando Calrissian, you know, Billy Dee Williams comes on screen. He's got, he's got his smooth style. Uh, he ends up being a villain and a hero, both within the span of about 20 minutes of the film. And, you accept that. I mean, you get to see him at his lowest and it is, and, and then trying to redeem himself. And there's a part of you that can kind of understand why he's at where he's at, because he's got basically the empire, uh, enforcing themselves on, on this operation that he's got. So that to me was, was what made the film so brilliant. It gave all the characters, the, the richness, um, that I wanted to see of them. I, I thought that the economy of motion, uh, taking things between the varying storylines, you got Han and Leia off in the Millennium Falcon, you've got Luke off doing the training, um, the way they intercut all that and then cutting that together with, uh, with Vader and the Imperials was just masterfully done. I, I think a lot of, uh, like Infinity War, that was one of the things that worked so well about that film with me. They told all these diverse storylines seamlessly and they balanced the action. Um, and I felt like they did the exact same thing in Empire and, and, uh, Still, for me, it's it's the one. Um, if I had to pick one Star Wars film that I could turn on at any point in time and watch it, Rogue One is up there certainly for me as well. Um, but Empire is still at the top of the list, and uh, I I don't know. I, what do you guys? Is it your go-to film, or uh, do you have one that you prefer to watch more than that? You're a smart man, Rob. <laughs> Those are my choices as well. Sweet. Well, uh, I, I'm I'm a Jedi guy only because it was it was the first one that I ever remember seeing, and uh, you know I've it's just been that spot. You know, it took that spot as as a kid, and, and it just retained. Now, as far as you know, people want to talk all these greater than symbols I see on social media. I I, I hate that crap. Yeah. Uh, say what's better than the other thing. Um, you know, is what's a better movie? Yeah, you can definitely say that Empire technically speaking is a better movie than Jedi, but Jedi is my go-to movie and rogue two is my number two because like that, you know, we, we have the Jedi, we have the Sith, we have, you know, the, like I said, the spiritual aspect uh, of the force, but you know, I, I look at star Wars, the, the wars part of it. I, I love the military aspect of these movies. That's why I love watching rogue one. Uh, I think they can be, you know, watched time and time again without getting old, but empire, you know, it's still a timeless movie. When you said Rogue Two, I thought you were talking about A New Hope. I thought we'd given it a new name. <laughs> Initially, you did, but but I thought no. that it was. I thought you were brilliantly renaming A New Hope Rogue oh. Two Rogue Two because, for me, they're all they're all one film. Oh, absolutely. That's my cheat yeah, when I'm asked to rank stuff. I just say Rogue One and and New Hope are the same film. You pretty much have to watch them together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You watch those back to back. I've told people many times: read the Tarkin book. Yes. Uh, and then watch Rogue One and then watch A New Hope. And you have you can even you know, put Catalyst in there, too, if you want mm -hmm. to read that. You know, read those two books, watch those two movies, and you have a full storyline right there. Uh, the whole Tarkin Krennic uh, duality and, uh, you know, culminating with A New Hope. And that's that's an amazing experience. Throw Lost Stars in there, too, because I know that you guys just had an episode with Claudia Gray that you probably want to make sure people yeah, know yeah. is out there. Well, definitely. And uh, one thing, you know, talk, going back to Empire uh, with with Claudia Gray uh, is 
she took a moment, uh, and we were talking about the asteroid field. Uh, you know, the moment where the uh, they're you know flying close to the big one, and you know Han splits, uh, you know the the two uh, the two walls there, and then those two Tie fighters behind them both explode. She took that moment and actually expanded on it, and they're like, why why are we sending these two guys out? You know, so she actually gave life to those two Tie Fighters that exploded right behind the Millennium yeah. Falcon, and that's what makes that book amazing. Closer. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely. I, I have not. I have not uh, watched that episode yet. I, it is on my list of things to do this week. Uh, Lost Stars is a wonderful book. I love a lot of the stuff that Claudia has done. Uh, she certainly knows her Star Wars uh, and and knows how to bring that feeling out. So. Definitely check that out. Go over to the uh, Scarif Scuttlebutt podcast. Check out their YouTube channel, and you can find it both places, I believe. Or is the uh, is the actual episode up on uh, the uh, the episode is uh, the live interview is up on YouTube, and yeah. the uh, podcast episode will uh, be coming soon, awesome. hopefully uh, this weekend. Yeah. yeah. Tom, what have you got going on with the Hyperion Adventures podcast? Well, we are about to hit our two-year anniversary this coming week, and so we're very excited about that. So we're just going to be looking back at a little bit of what we've done over the last year and what we have coming up here. We've got some a few things in the works, so that's exciting for us. But uh, we always uh, hope that you'll join us. We talk mostly Disney on our podcast, but we also uh, broach into Star Wars quite often. We have always kind of secretly wanted to be a little bit of a Star Wars podcast, so I was glad Rob started this so we could kind of have that to, to uh, branch off on. But if you ever want to find us and and, and follow along with our fun, uh, we are the best place to find us is on our own website, HyperionAdventuresPodcast.com, but we're also on uh, pretty much every uh, pod server that you could find out there. And if you ever want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Hyperion Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest at Hyperion Adventures Podcast. Ro, do you want to give the full information on where everyone can find you guys in the Scarif Scuttlebutt Podcast? Sure. You know, uh, we can definitely be found on all podcatchers everywhere. We uh, love the fact that folks can also find us on YouTube and we are on Twitch. If anybody is a gamer, we usually do a couple of shows there as well. Um, but uh, one of the things that Brad and I are most proud of, and uh, you are part of this venture, is the Red 5 Network, a uh, podcast uh, network of uh, our, uh, you know, friends, our podcast friends, and some folks that uh, we've come to admire. Um, so red5network.com, come and check us out. There is a plethora of wonderful Star Wars material there, uh, different voices uh, of Star Wars, uh, mostly Star Wars, but you've got also you know guys like uh, the Salty Nerd Podcast. They cover a lot of other things. Um, very entertaining podcast. Um, but uh, for the most part, uh, yes, anywhere that you can find podcatchers, uh, you can find uh, the Scarif podcast. Uh, Brad and I uh, and Alex, uh, who join us, joins us from time to time. Uh, we are uh, Team Scarif, uh, just enjoying interacting with a lot of our members and a lot of our uh, affiliates uh, that uh, we found 
uh, are just, you know, you know, loving the fact that we're all kind of uh, one big uh, happy family, dysfunctional family sometimes, but we're pretty happy. Those are the best kind of families. And uh, I can yeah. definitely say, you know, there's there's a lot of podcast networks out there and I uh, certainly have all the respect in the world for them. Uh, but this group, uh, I definitely was was drawn to just because it's exactly what you said, Ro. It's it's a family. It's uh, you know, numerous podcasts, uh, many of whom have different viewpoints, but there's so much respect for those viewpoints across the entire board. So much positivity, which is what we're looking for. But positivity with with the desire to still be honest to what our feelings are. Uh, and I know that we've talked about it before. Everyone on this podcast right now is is from an era where you could disagree with people, have conversations, you could have debates with your friends. Uh, and at the end of the day, you walk away and you just respect the fact that everyone's got a different viewpoint and it doesn't make anyone better or worse. And uh, we definitely want to promote that within the Star Wars community to the greatest extent that we can. And clearly it is working because we don't just have Red Squadron uh, within the Red 5 network. We now have a Gold Squadron that has formed because we've had so much interest in uh, in people joining up and uh, just, just the amount of interaction that we have in the chat and how vested everyone is in trying to drive the success of not just their podcast, but the other uh, podcast, both within the network as well as our affiliates is super cool. Uh, and it's a lot of fun to interact with everyone. So um, before we wrap up, do you guys have any final thoughts, uh, any any parting wisdom from uh, Empire Strikes Back that you want to unload on the listeners? There is no try. There is no try. Who is it that said that was their favorite scene? <laughs> well, nobody. remember, only, only Sith deal in absolutes. So True. Do or do not. There is no try. <laughs> that is wild, Brad. That's what I'm here for. That's the scuttlebutt. <laughs> awesome. Hey, that's our line. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me to talk about Empire Strikes Back, especially here on the 40th anniversary. Hopefully we're still around doing this in 10 years and we can celebrate the 50th in uh, similar style. And for any of you out there who want to uh, get involved with the Jedi Temple Archives podcast or the Red 5 Network, Ro gave you the Red 5 information earlier. Uh, Jedi Temple Archives podcast. Again, you can catch us anywhere you find podcasts and uh, we can be reached by via email at jtapodcast at gmail.com. Our voicemail is 201-746-5827, which is JTAP. And uh, you can find us on social media at JTA Podcast. So uh, that'll do it for uh, this week. We're really looking forward to hearing the feedback on this episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Thank you guys, and may the Force be with you. (laughs) 